I invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 12 again this morning. Matthew 12. Matthew 12. Last week I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that we had come to a passage of God's Word that was quite sobering indeed. And I want to prepare your minds that we're continuing in such a passage again this morning. And in the providence of God, that's what He has for us to hear. And God, in His almighty, sovereign mercy, has so orchestrated the entire course of your life that you're sitting here in that chair right now listening to this particular passage of the Word. And so I invite you and admonish you to hear it and to receive it and let the Word do its good work in us. Somebody came to me um, at the end of the service last week and and asked a question, and I, I thought... Uh, about that and and thought that I should uh, share my answer with them. I should share it publicly with you as well. We read last week about a portion of Scripture in which Jesus talks and warns about a sin against the Holy Spirit that is to the level of blasphemy that he says will never be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. It is, in other words, this kind of sin is going to be unforgiven all the way through uh, into eternity. And the question was, can we ever know whether someone has committed this sin? If they have committed the sin against the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven And I think that the answer is no, in the sense that, if you remember last week, I said that this sin, as we see it unpacked in the Scriptures, both here in Matthew and then in in Hebrews and other places, it, it seems to be a sin of settled rebellion against God. And, of course, our knowledge of people is limited. We don't know their hearts, and we don't know the future, and we don't know what the grace of God may yet do. And so for that reason, I'm not sure that we can really, in fact, I'm pretty confident that we cannot know, at least with certainty, that someone has completely apostatized. So if that's the case, then how should we respond to someone who continues to rebel against Christ. And I think the answer comes in that passage that I concluded the sermon with from Hebrews chapter 3, where the writer of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament saying, Today, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. And then the writer says this, Let us exhort each other, as long as it's called today, exhort one another. Today, turn 
from your sin. Tomorrow it may be too late for you ever to be pardoned again. So we continue to urge people, while as long as there's a today, urge them to repent of their sin and come to Christ. I think that's, that's the right way to respond, even as we recognize that there are people whom God completely gives over to a to their unbelief in such a way that it is impossible for them to ever come back to the knowledge of God that they repudiated. So again, I say we're still continuing on in this pretty sober passage. And we're going to see in this text today three manifestations of sinful unbelief. Three manifestations of sinful unbelief. And as we read this text, I just say to you again, take care, brothers, that there be in, there be in none of you an evil, unbelieving heart. The Word of God is Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38 to the end of the chapter. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through the waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. And it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he, re he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Once again, it's a brief interaction with the Pharisees, you'll see, that starts this 
um, extended um, discussion that our Lord has with the people who hear him. And in this case, the scribes and the Pharisees come to him looking for a what? A sign. That's right. They look for a sign. They say to us, they say to him, uh, prove to us, prove to us that you are the Son of God. Now, does that strike you strange, especially having worked together through the first 12 chapters of the book as we've seen them? In fact, the Lord has shown them many miracles, hasn't He? Again and again and again. He's given testimony, testimony of the Holy Spirit, that He is anointed from God beyond all measure. He is the anointed one, none less than the Messiah. He has given them this testimony. There have been many miracles recorded. In fact, when we worked through chapters 10 to 8 to 10, we saw 10 different miracles recorded, including some that were just whole clusters of miracles. And in fact, as we work our way through the rest of the book, we'll see many, many more. And yet, even after more and more and more miracles, when you come to chapter 14 and 15, by the time you get to chapter 16, these people are still asking him, show us a sign. I remember so clearly my seminary professor saying to us, guys, evidence alone will never convince a sinner of truth. Evidence alone will never convince a sinner of truth. And that's true. These people didn't need more evidence There was no amount of evidence that would persuade them for they were determined to explain it all away in their unbelief. We uh, remember John chapter 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000. I mean, more than that, but he fed thousands and thousands of people with just a little lunch. And this was an astounding thing, a miracle of miracles done before not just merely a few disciples, but vast multitudes of people, and how did the crowds respond? They came to Him the next day seeking Him, and they said, show us another sign. Moses gave us a sign, you give us a sign, and we'll believe in you. And Jesus looked at them and said, you don't, you don't seek for a sign because you're ready to believe. You seek for your bellies to be full. Or remember the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. And after they died, Lazarus is in paradise and the rich man in torment. And the rich man remembers that he has brothers still alive. And in his torment, he says, please send someone from beyond the grave resurrect them and send them back to preach to my brothers because so that they don't come into this place. Send them a sign from, from beyond the grave. And remember the answer that was given him. They have what? 
They have Moses and the prophets. They have the testimony of the Word of the Almighty God. If they will not listen, if they will not listen to the testimony of Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. So, Jesus answers these people who come to Him asking for another sign. This is not to say that evidence has no place in our testimony. I think, in fact, John called Jesus miracles that He did. He referred to them in the terminology of signs. They were testimony. The apostles pointed to Jesus' resurrection as proof that He was the Messiah. But the the fact is that no one looks at facts objectively. Everyone looks at evidence with bias, with faith commitments, with presuppositions that they bring to the table. Everyone reads the world in light of his or her own confirmation bias. And so unbelief just begets unbelief. But Christianity comes and confronts our confirmation bias by demanding an admission of sin and rebellion and brokenness. And it's only when we're willing to humble ourselves before the Almighty that our eyes begin to be open to see what we really see. So, friend, don't say to yourself this morning, if only God would give me more evidence that He's real, that this is true, that the Gospel is genuine, that the Word of God is is right. If only He would give me more proof. Say, rather, what in the world can I do for all my rebellion and sin against God? That is the beginning of seeing. It does not start with more evidence. It starts with humility and repentance and faith. So Jesus answers these Pharisees and and scribes, these perpetual sign seekers calling them an evil and spiritually adulterous generation. You will get no more signs, he says to them. Nothing that will be effective for you. The only sign that generation of Jews would receive would be one that would condemn them. And Jesus says, you will see the sign of whom? The sign of Jonah. Jonah's a man who goes down into the waters of death. And then after three days, he's raised to life again, as it were, 
to go and preach God's Word, which is probably the most direct and clear testimony to the Lord's resurrection that Christ has given this far in the book. This is the sign of Jonah. But what gives that sign real force is that it resulted in the repentance of a heathen people, the Ninevites. But Christ's greater resurrection would result in the hardening of those who were supposed to be His people. How can this be, right? That's the force of this sign. So that the repentant heathen of Nineveh will be witness number one, so to speak, brought into the dock to level accusation at the people of God for all that they have seen in terms of testimony to the Messiah. And then the witness number two is called, and that is similar, verse 42, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, down in Arabia or Africa. This queen we read about who came from the ends of the earth, as it were, to hear the word of Solomon, God's chosen and anointed king. But the Jews of Jesus' day will not listen to even that greater son of David who's right there in their own midst. Once again, you see the force of these witnesses and this sign that would bring only condemnation to these people. This was a generation who continued to reject Christ by the constant demand for greater evidence. This is the first manifestation of sinful unbelief, a rejection of Christ by a constant demand for greater evidence. And that brings us to the second paragraph, verses 43 to 45. And here Jesus identifies another manifestation of sinful unbelief, and that is a rejection of Christ in spite of a kind of experience of His grace. A rejection of Christ in spite of a kind of experience of His grace. In these verses, he gives yet another illustration to the people. He says, um, picture a man possessed of demons and an exorcist comes and casts the demon out. And after wandering homeless, the demon returns, but he finds the man cleansed now of his evil spirit and the evil in his heart. The house is swept and put in order, right? But he also finds that the house is what? It's empty. It is unoccupied. In other words, 
Picture, Jesus says, a person dispossessed of an unclean spirit, but never really filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ. And so, what does the demon do? He goes out and gathers seven worse demons and comes and inhabits this man. And Jesus ends this way that, listen to this, this is sobering, the last state of that man was worse than he was even at the beginning before he experienced some taste of deliverance and grace. You see what he's getting at, friends? Do you see? This is a picture, Jesus says, of that whole unbelieving generation of Israel. They experience the grace of God in a powerful way. In the words of the book of Hebrews, they had been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. They had tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come were being performed right in their very midst. And yet, they hardened their hearts against it. And Jesus says today, listen, Woe to that man or that woman or that boy or that girl who has had some taste of the goodness and the grace of God and has rejected it and suppressed it and pushed it away and determined to go his own way. For the last state of that man will be worse than it ever was at the beginning before he had ever tasted of the goodness of God. The Word of God is being preached to you and you are convicted of sin. And there may be someone who has determined under the preaching of the Word of God that you will try harder, you will do a better job, and you will try to expel your sinful habits. But I tell you that without receiving humbly the grace of Christ and the outpouring of His Holy Spirit upon you, you will merely make room for sin seven times worse than you ever knew before. In other words, it is possible to have a kind of experience of grace that results merely in the expulsion of some kind of great visible sin, but never really opens itself up to the ongoing work of the Spirit in the heart. And that person grieves the Spirit again and again, quenches the Spirit, and perhaps even is in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God. And I tell you again, listen, friend, that kind of danger is unique to people who've had some measure of the experience of the cleansing grace of God. These are, this is not the sin of a person who has rebelled against 
merely the light of nature or conscience. This is the sin of a person who has heard the word of God, who has seen a bit of the work of God in his life and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he has turned himself against it because he's decided that he's going to go his own way. That she will do what she just wants to do. And I'm warning you today that your Savior said that you are opening yourself up for a whole world of evil. The third vignette that Matthew presents here in this third paragraph is a a third manifestation, in a way, of sinful unbelief. And it is a rejection of Christ in spite of a close and intimate exposure to Him and to His body. A rejection of Christ in spite of a close and intimate exposure to Him and to his body. While Jesus was teaching uh, the people, we see this in the last paragraph there, right beginning in verse 46, while Jesus was teaching the people, and the other Gospels record this as well, uh, his family came to him to meet him to the house where he was preaching. And um, the other Gospels help to fill this in a little bit because Matthew just gives us the shorthand version. But in Mark Uh, excuse me, in John chapter 7, verse 5, we read that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in Him. Are you aware of that? At this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, His brothers, His own, well, we would say His half-brothers, right? Since Joseph is only His his sort of uh, earthly uh, adoptive father, as it were. But his, His brothers... And his sisters, his siblings, his family uh, were unbelievers at this point. And in fact, Mark chapter 3, verse 21, tells us that his family came here to the house in order to stop him from preaching because they were afraid that he was crazy. All right? So that's exactly what's going on here. They are not just coming for a friendly visit. They're coming in opposition to him. Now, I'm sure that wasn't his mother's thinking, but perhaps she is persuaded by the rest of her family. Um, at this point, in fact, her husband, Joseph, is, is, is likely dead by just from the language of the Scriptures. And so Jesus' brothers are sort of persuading her that we need to go and stop your son from making a fool of himself. And so the brothers come, and that's exactly what they're intent on doing. Um, If you are here still in Matthew, right? look in chapter 13. You'll see the names of his brothers in in verse uh, 55. The people of Israel say, is this not the carpenter's son? Talking about Christ, 1355. And his brothers... Uh, his mother Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And of course he had 
sisters also with us, they said. So Jesus had, you know, humanly speaking, he had had these siblings. Uh, Now we know that God's grace did eventually transform some of their hearts. His brother James, for example, we know much about him. He became a great leader in the church and a testimony for the name of Christ. His brother Judas, or Jude, also likely uh, was a believer and likely the, the author of the book of Jude in our Bibles. We, uh, we have some historical tradition that says that uh, the brother named Simon also became a believer and eventually a pastor as well. But we really have no record that Joseph ever believed in his brother as the Messiah, nor do we really know much of anything about Jesus' sisters. But clearly at this point, they were unbelievers. And listen to this, they were unbelievers in spite of having lived and grown up with the Son of God. Can you imagine that? They watched him grow up. He was perfect, always kind, obedient, flawless. He was raised in their home right alongside of them. You know the old saying, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt when unbelief rules the heart. And that's exactly where these brothers were at this point in their life anyway. In spite of a close and intimate exposure to Christ, they were nevertheless unbelieving. And I think how many a young person, how many a young person was raised in a Christian home and heard the Word of God from the time He sat on his mother's knee and he sat under so many sermons. How many times she was made to memorize the very words of the Spirit. How many times they heard with power the preaching of the Word of God. How much light they were given in the knowledge of true doctrine and the way of salvation, and who yet, when they came of age, walked away from it all, and so manifested of heart of unbelief. They said, that is old news now. Church is so boring. I want to live my own life. I'm ready to get out of here and and do my thing. Because the gospel has never become real for them. And I want to speak especially to young people, but to all of us who've had such incredible and intimate exposure to the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother, friend, don't harden your heart against such great light that you've been given. Do you hear me? 
Don't harden your heart. Don't grow cold to the Lord Jesus. For God in His mercy put you in His midst. He brought the Lord Jesus right into your home. Oh, God forbid that someone who grows up in that kind of situation should rebel against all the incredible grace that they have received. It is an unspeakable privilege to grow up with such exposure to the Lord Jesus. And I urge you today to turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. Humble yourself before the Almighty. Confess your sin and you will find mercy abundant, grace overwhelming. Maybe you've never thought much about your sin. Maybe you've grown up hearing the word sin so often that it's as if it's insignificant to you anymore. I want to remind you that it is for your sin that the Son of God was nailed to a bloody cross. You who think of sin lightly, look on that cross. Look who had to die so that sinners could be saved. The perfect and pure and holy Son of God who shed His blood of righteousness and love. Would you trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God? Would you walk over the sacrifice that has been made so that you might be saved? Oh, listen today. I tell you, if you hear the voice of Christ in these words today, don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. Say, Lord, here am I. Speak. I hear you. I want, I want you to come into my heart and to save me. They said to Jesus, your family's outside. And He said to them, here are my family. Here are my mother and my sister, my brothers, the ones who do the will of God. I want to warn you that it is possible to be so close and yet so far from Jesus Christ. You've heard His Word again and again. You've seen the truth. But you say, if I just had more evidence, or you've experienced conviction of sin and some measure of grace, but you yet walk away resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Or you grow up with consistent exposure to the things of Christ and yet remain unconverted. How great a condemnation would fall upon us if that were true of us. We who have received such great light, do not harden your heart like that evil and adulterous generation. Open your heart up to the Holy Spirit of Christ.
Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't go on living day after day after day after day, quenching the Holy Spirit, ignoring His Word, closing yourself off to the Bible and to prayer, and just isolating yourself. You are in grave, grave danger. This is the message that our Lord brings to us today. And it will do us good if we will heed the warning and if we will see the grace that comes for those who do the Father's will. In John 6, Jesus says to, or the people say to Jesus, what must we do that we may work the works of God, the Father? And Jesus says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in me whom the Father has sent. And I urge you today, if you would put your humble, repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be, what does he say? My family. Amen? My family, my brothers, my sister, my mother. He would bring you who are outsiders to the grace of God, to the family of God. He would bring you in. You who were fighting against God's law, rebellious in your heart, who sinned against the knowledge of the truth that you had, could yet find mercy if you would lay down your rebellion and submit your life completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is mercy. He would draw you in and He would say, you are my family. The writer of Hebrews says, He is not ashamed to call them what? His brethren. His brothers. The Holy Son of God, think about that calling a sinner, my brother, my sister. And because a brother and sister of Christ, a child of God. A child of God, and because a child of God, an inheritor of all that the Son inherits, of eternal life and joy in the presence of the Father for all eternity in a world made righteous and pure and holy by His power and His presence. All of this belongs to those of us who are His family by virtue of His Son in whom He is well pleased. And it comes to us through faith. Call out to Christ today. Say to Him, Lord, Lord, I am a sinner. My sins are many. And I have no excuse for them. I deserve Your condemnation and Your judgment. But my hope is in Jesus Christ. And I ask You for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake, to deliver me from my sin and from hell and save me. Give your heart to Christ. Jesus says, these, these are my family. I will bring them into fellowship with God. Whoever does the will of God in heaven is my brother 
and my sister and my mother. You've been given a lot. You've been given much, much light. Don't harden your heart. But hear and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and pray? Oh Lord, right now while we sit here, please work true repentance and faith in the hearts of these hearers that they may begin in faith or go on in faith. Oh Lord, I pray that that you may perhaps yet still have mercy on some who have resisted you in the full knowledge of what they're doing. I pray, Lord, please, please, may it not be too late for them I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.